0: Always uh, honored and excited to get to to uh, stand under the word with you guys and to learn from it. Um, my name is Ben. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to be in John three today, uh, so you can go ahead and be turning there. I, I love what uh, Gary Morgan reminded us of last week um, that when we we read when we read the word, we're not primarily reading for information. Information is important. But we're reading, more importantly, for transformation. And so uh, even, our, even our gathering here today, when we sing these songs, we're, we're singing because we're uplifting Jesus and we're hoping for God to intersect with us in a special way in this moment and to transform us. That's what we long for. And uh, I, I, love, I love to learn new things, um, And uh, anybody that knows me very well knows I kind of go all in on new hobbies all the time. Um, If it's not uh, pocket knives, it's lawn care or coffee or mustache wax or, you know, it just could be it could be anything, you know, uh, that I could go in on next. And I just I love to soak up new information. But, you know, if you've if you've been around the church for a while, it's easy to kind of bring that mindset again into our gathering and to go uh you know and just kind of check out sometimes and go well i've i've heard this before i'm i'm not learning anything new and I, and i just want to urge you and and urge myself to 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 always be looking to listen with fresh ears and with an open heart and to say god i i don't just need new information i need to be reminded of what i'm not doing and what I don't really believe. And I need to be reminded of what I do believe, but it doesn't feel like I believe it very much right now. And I need you to transform me. And so I hope as we read maybe the, the most famous chapter in the Bible, definitely the most famous verse in the Bible, that we, that we will be open to hear with, with new ears. And so as we read it here in a second, Holy Spirit, would you, would you speak? Would you speak to our hearts? Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love to, to let you have one. Um, just hold up your hand if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, and our ushers will bring you one. Uh, and again, we're going to be at John 3, that's page 887 probably in this Bible. Uh, so if you need a Bible, just hold up your hand and kind of turn there with us. If not, you can tune in on your, uh, on your phone or via the screens. Um, but we're going to be in John chapter 3. Let's go ahead and read together. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's the word of the Lord. I uh, remember somewhat vividly uh, my senior year of high school being in 12th grade English with Mrs. Brewer, a lady that I I learned to like, but initially it was kind of sandpaper. She was a uh, feminist and generally hated all males of any sort, uh, except for the Rolling Stones. She loved the Rolling Stones. And uh, she would, I remember she took off and like traveled to Canada for like three concerts back to back, just flew up there to to see old Mick. Um, and so she was, she was a bit crazy, but she's a good teacher. Uh, but we had to, for our senior, uh, our senior English paper, we had to write like a thesis paper. I think it may have been the biggest paper that i had ever had to write for school up until that point. And this is uh, before the advent of laptops everywhere so ubiquitous, ubiquitously, and before like evernote and things like that, and so we were doing an old school way like you had note card like physical note cards, and they were teaching you how to do a research paper you got to write on these note cards and compile all your notes and you have these different stacks. I always kind of hated that method i 'm glad frankly that I have a laptop, but that 's how I was having to do it back in them to back then to satisfy uh, this class and they gave us you know, all these different subjects that we could write on. You had to pick one. And so I picked uh, Arthur Miller's The Crucible. I was going to write a paper on that famous play. And in my mind, it was nothing more than a play about uh, the Salem witch trials. I was like, witches, this seems cool. I'll write a paper on that. And so I went to uh, the biggest library in town to begin reading some of these critical reviews of The Crucible and to begin understanding it better uh, and that was the Mississippi University for Women in, uh, in Columbus, Mississippi. The W, as we called it. And uh, a cool, like, mid-century, like, old-school library. And so I went in there and started diving through, you know, all these critical, you know, big books, critical reviews of the Crucible. And, uh, and reading. Have you ever suddenly in a moment realized you're kind of out of your depth? Like, I don't know what I just got into. It, it, it was a little bit that moment because I just thought this was a play about the Salem witch trials. But Arthur Miller wrote this play as an allegory about something called McCarthyism. I had no idea. Uh, here's what Wikipedia says to just kind of describe it, to kind of help you if you don't, if you're unfamiliar. It says, The Crucible is a 1953 play by American playwright Arthur Miller. It's a dramatized and partially- fictionalized story of the Salem witch trials that took place in the Massachusetts Bay Colony during 1692 and 1693. Miller wrote the play as an allegory for McCarthyism when the United States government persecuted people accused of being communist. Miller himself was questioned by the House Representatives Committee on un-American activities in 1956 and convicted of contempt of Congress For refusing to identify others present at meetings he had attended. So at this time in America, there was what was called the Red Scare, and there was a lot of fear that communists were everywhere among us, and that Russia had secretly invaded and and was trying to turn our country communist. And so uh, a bit of a witch trial, we still use that phrase that way, went on during the 50s, where they were just convicting people and jailing them for uh, supposedly communist uh, ties, and probably some of them were and some of them weren't. But, but Miller wrote the whole play to demonstrate that some of these accusations and some of the people being put in jail, it was ridiculous. And we just needed somebody to blame. None of that has any bearing on the sermon. But I had no idea <laughs> that that's what this play was about when I decided to write a paper on it. And I remember talking to our, uh, like, uh, there was a girl that was uh, our helper teacher. You know, she was in college. Uh, and so she was kind of in charge of the classes like a semester. And, she, and I approached her one day. She's like, how's the paper going? I'm like, ah, pretty good. I was like, but I I guess this is a play about McCarthyism. I had no idea. And she just looked at me like, yeah, you're dumb. And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, you know, <laughs> guilty. I had no idea. And Nicodemus, when he gets in this conversation with Jesus, is is way in over his head. He has no idea. No, he's coming from a position of authority and he has no authority. And so I want us to look at it again together. Uh, Nick at night here. Uh, but we, we don't know. We don't know why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. It, it could have been that um, you know, he was a little embarrassed talking to Jesus. He didn't want his his buddies to know about that, and so he's like, "I'm gonna do this at night, kind of on the on the down low, and no one will be uh, better." It could have been he was trying to make an alliance with Jesus, kind of a survivor sort of scenario, like, "Hey, you and me, and then we'll we'll kick them out of the tribe." I, you know, I don't know. Uh, it could have it could have been that he was trying to kind of check Jesus out privately and kind of see what was up. We've heard some things. I want to, ch- you know, either any regardless. He he kind of came in like, hey, I'm I'm a Pharisee. I'm a ruler of the people. And he comes to Jesus. Now he does come, um, he does come pretty graciously. It, it, if you look again, it says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi. So that's a collegial term. Nicodemus himself was a rabbi, and so he he. Hey, colleague, hey, rabbi, we, we know that you're a teacher from God because you, you've done some amazing things. And those aren't really easy to explain. And D.A. And Carson puts it this one. Uh, Formally, Nicodemus has not yet asked anything, but the implied question seems to be something like, Who are you then, Jesus? We know you're a teacher from God, but but are you more? Are are you a prophet? Are are you the Messiah? And again, Nicodemus coming, what he feels like from a place of authority, questioning Jesus, and then Jesus flips the script on Nicodemus, and Nicodemus suddenly realizes he's in way over his head, and Jesus comes out swinging and just says, verse 3, truly, truly, yo, bro, pay attention. I say to you, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so I think it's first important for us to think, how would he have received that initial statement? Nicodemus, unless one's born again, parallel word is regenerated, or unless one experiences the new birth, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Again, here's what Carson helps us kind of understand that this phrase kingdom of God is not used anywhere in the Old Testament, but, but kingdoms are spoken of and, and the Lord is spoken of spoken of as reigning and he is a king. And then further, there was this idea in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, that, that a kingdom was coming, right? And that one day a, a David-like king was going to come back to Israel and he was going to defeat Israel's enemies and he was going, he was going to reign. So there, there was that idea in the Old Testament. And, and here's what D.A. Carson concludes. He says, To a Jew with the background and convictions of Nicodemus, to see the kingdom of God was to participate in the kingdom of God at the end of the age to experience eternal resurrection life. And so that's probably how Nicodemus interpreted this. When Jesus says, you need to be born again. He not know what that means. But he says, Jesus says, you need to be born again or, or you cannot see eternal life. You can't, you can't see the kingdom. You can't see the time when the Messiah will reign and things will be set back right. Now, that's confrontational. We're talking about a pretty good guy. He comes to Jesus in over his head, but respectfully, he's well thought of. He's a Pharisee. He seems to be a nicer Pharisee as far as Pharisees go. You know, And, and he, he comes to Jesus, and Jesus goes, you need to be born again, or you're not part of the kingdom of God. You can't see it. You can't enter it. And so Nicodemus says, I don't think he's being dense here, by the way. I think this is a way of kind of going, tell me more, Jesus. But it says in verse four, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I don't, I don't think he's being dense or sarcastic. He's just kind of going, okay, like, where, where are you going with it? And then it says, again in verse 5, and I think, I think what Jesus is doing in verse 5 is he is, is lovingly answering Nicodemus' question. Jesus says, you need to be born again or you can't see the kingdom. I don't understand Jesus. Jesus says, let me put it to you another way. And so in verse 5, here's how he puts it to him another way. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the first time he said, see the kingdom of God, now he says, enter the kingdom of God. They're parallel statements. You can't see or enter the kingdom. You can't have eternal life unless you're born again. Or, to put it another way, born of water and the Spirit. Now that phrase, there's a lot of different interpretations of that phrase. We're not going to go really deep into it, but I'm going to tell you two that I think are wrong, and then I'm going to tell you what I think is the right way to understand that phrase. Uh, One way to see this is is referring to baptism and salvation. Like, if you're not born of water, baptism, born of the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom. I don't think that makes sense of the passage. Uh, For one thing, baptism in the Scriptures is never part of salvation. It's always an outward expression of what's already happened. It's not a requirement, thief on the cross. It's not a requirement to get into heaven. But it's something that we do do once we come to faith in Jesus to tell the world what's happened to us. Further, baptism is not really only John's baptism, which is his own whole thing, is really going on there yet. So this doesn't even make sense historically where it happens. So I don't think Jesus means that. Another way to understand this is that it's referring to physical birth and spiritual birth. And so the water would picture like the amniotic fluid that a baby lives inside in his mama before he's born and, or she's born. And, and Jesus saying, you need to be born physically But more important than that, you need to be born spiritually or you can't enter the kingdom. And that's a better interpretation, but I still think it's wrong. Jesus is speaking to a Pharisee who likely had most, if not all, of the Old Testament memorized, which is crazy. But that's what they did. And Jesus says, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says, I don't, what are you talking about? And Jesus says, let me help you out. And so I think what he does is he appeals to an Old Testament idea said probably most specifically in Ezekiel 36. And I think he's trying to get, uh, get Nicodemus' mind to go, oh, oh, that thing. So let's, let's read Ezekiel 36. And So if you turn, if you turn with me there. Ezekiel thirty six. Here's what's prophesied. Now, in 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 this port portion of the Old Testament, uh, Israel has been kicked out of the Promised Land for their sin, and um, and they're captives everywhere. And God is prophesying what's going to happen in the future. And beginning at verse twenty four, this is what He says. of flesh, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I think what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus says, you need to be born again. Jesus, I don't understand. Let me put it to you another way. You need to be cleansed of your sin and you need to be given a new heart. You need to be born of water and spirit. Nicodemus still doesn't get it. But, but what, what's, the, what's the fundamental problem with all of us? The, the fundamental problem with all of us is, is not that we don't know right and wrong. The problem with all of us is, is, is not that we don't know what we ought to do. The, the problem with us, everyone in this room, myself included, is that though we know what we ought to do, We can't seem to do it. Sometimes we don't even want to do it. The Pharisees were looking for a Messiah to come and to make all things right. And they were convinced that the reason things were not yet all right the way that they ought to be and the reason that the Messiah had not yet come is that the people had not followed the law of God the way that they ought to. And there was some truth to that. So they were hyper-focused on following the law. They were hyper-focused on following all the rules. They even made new rules to help them obey the other rules. They're like, well, if it we didn't spell it out here, let's talk about 12 ways that this could possibly, you, you would need to follow this. And so there were all kinds of rules about, you know, how you had to wash so you, that you weren't unclean, and how you had to obey the Sabbath, and how far you could walk on the Sabbath, and how, you, how far, you, you know, You you couldn't walk on the Sabbath. They they were focused on all the rules and and obeying the word of God because they're saying, that's what we need. If we could all just obey, then the Messiah would come and everything would be set right. And Jesus here says to Nicodemus, that's not the problem, bro. The problem is, is even though you know what you ought to do, you don't do it. In fact, you don't even want to do it sometimes. Jesus accused the Pharisees of being whitewashed tombs who did everything right on the outside. It looked white, but inside it was rotten and dirty and hypocritical. We know that at least some of them were out for power and prestige and money. More than anything else. But we need to be born again. That's what we really need. It's what Nicodemus really needed. Didn't need more religion. Didn't need to be a better guy. He needed to be given a new heart, one that loved the Father one that was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Here's how Titus 3 in the New Testament describes the new birth. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of the good things we've done. That's not how we're saved, but according to his own mercy, how? How? By the washing of regeneration, or we could say by the washing of being born again or by the washing of the new birth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see that? You need to be cleansed and you need to be given a new heart. You need cleansing and you need renewal. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. D.A. Carson again says, apparently Nicodemus had not thought of the Old Testament passages this way. It was like some other, if he was like some other Pharisees, he was too confident of the quality of his own obedience to think that he needed much repentance, let alone to have his whole life cleansed and his heart transformed. Be born again. This is a really amazing song by a band called Ghost Ship. And the name of the tree is the song is called Poison Tree. And I want to read you a few lyrics. It's kind of it's kind of picturing this idea. Here's what it says: the lyrics says, This tree bears strange fruit. There's blood on the leaves. It's dead at the root. The cracked gray branches are decaying within, just like the black poison that hangs from its limbs. And in the next verse he says, I I tried to tie good fruit to a tree that had poison all the way through. And that good fruit rotted and fell off. It was dead to the core. It even killed the ground. It was worse than before. It's this picture of trying to add good works to a dead heart. Some of us are really convinced. I do things like this all the time, right? We all do. But some of us have like lists and we're really convinced like, man, if I could just make a little bit more money and if I, if I could lose 50 pounds, and if, if I could just be a little bit, like, 10% more motivated every day, it, if I could kind of, like, pull myself up by my own bootstraps, then, like, then my, my life would be, like, perfect. I could just need a little bit more money, a, a little bit more fitness, and, and, a little, and, and I just need to add just, just a little bit more time with God. If I had if I just spent a little bit more time with him, then, then everything would be great. And, and that may be well and good if you're a believer and you're going, I need to set some priorities and some goals in life. But, but if, you're, if you're not a, a follower of Jesus and you're thinking, it's just, it's just add a few things to my life. If you're just trying to add Velcro on good fruit, but your heart's still dead, you're going to end up worse than when you started off. It doesn't work that way. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, you need to be born again. You need to be washed by the Holy Spirit and cleansed of your sin and given a new heart. Your heart is hard, and I need to take out the hard heart and give you a new heart, one that treasures me and loves me. That's what you need. Jesus drives home the point a little bit more and he says, Don't you know, Nicodemus? That which is born of flesh is flesh. If, if, if you've never been born again, you're still flesh. He says, But but if you've been born of the spirit, then then you're spirit. Then something's different. And he says, and, and don't don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And Andreas Kostenberger, Jesus here, tells his rabbinic counterpart to stop being surprised. Indeed, Jesus' teaching on the necessity of a spiritual birth was not new doctrine. Rather, it reiterated a vision clearly laid out in the Old Testament, saying, you should know this. Nicodemus had never woken up and realized how much he needed a new heart, needed to be born again. And, and lest I be remiss, it, Tim Keller helps us a lot by saying there's, there's really, all of us kind of have a, a, a default mode, or maybe you're a mixture. But most of us are either kind of naturally more rebellious, right? And, and we're, our, our, our response to God kind of naturally is kind of like, hey, I, hey man, I'm, I'm going to be my own person. I'm, I'm going to run my life. I'm going to do things my way. I, is that, oh, that's the rule? I think I'll break that rule. I'm not sure if it's a rule for me. I, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to figure out my own way. i I'm going to be my own person, and, and that's kind of your, some of you, that's, that's kind of the way your heart works. And then some of us are not that at all. We're, we're more naturally the rule followers. And so we're kind of like, hey, where's the standard? That's the standard? Oh, I can meet that standard, no problem. I can follow that rule. Oh, I need to do this. Oh, you're right. I can add that to my life. I can kind of do that. If that's the standard, oh, that person see him, I can be a little bit better than that person. All these people, they're screwed up. Look how good I am. If they're 80%, I'm 82. And that's, you're more naturally kind of a, a, re, a religious rule follower. You're always asking yourself, how can I be better? How can I measure up? How can I be a little bit better than the next person? And Tim says both of those approaches are ways of avoiding God. The, the, the rebellious person, very naturally, you can see they're, they're, they're giving God the finger and going, no, no, you're not my God. I'm my God. I'm going to do my own thing. I know how to make my life better. I don't want to follow the dictates of the Bible. Those aren't right for me. This is my truth. I'm a, I'm a, this is my truth for me. I know how to make myself happy. It's a lie. You're not really happy. You're miserable, but, but that's what you're saying. And then over here, you're avoiding God by saying, I don't, I don't need your righteousness. I got my own. Look how good I can do, Jesus. Look how much I can measure up. Look how great I am at following the rules. And Jesus says to both those types of people, so everybody in this room, whether you're one or the other or a mixture of those, depending on the day of the week, like he says to all of us, like, that doesn't work. You need a heart transplant. You need to be born again. Don't be surprised, like, that's that's what you need. So that that's the first major thing I want you to see in this passage the, the absolute necessity of the new birth. You're not a Christian if you have not, if the new birth has not happened to you. If God has never cleansed you of your sin and taken out your dead heart and given you a new heart, you don't know him. Absolutely necessary. But secondly, I want us to see what the experience of the new birth is like. What's it like? Because Nicodemus is still confused, and maybe you are too. And so Jesus gives us two pictures, and we don't have time to go through everything in this passage, but he gives us two really powerful pictures of what this new birth looks like. The first, kind of confusing, is in verse 8. He says, Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit, who's experienced a new birth. Jesus here compares the Holy Spirit to the wind. In fact, in the Greek, it's the same word, wind, spirit, pneuma, rua. It's the same thing. And so he compares the way that the Spirit works in the new birth to the way that wind blows. So John Piper helped me understand how this is kind of spelled out right here. And he says there's, there's four ways that we can think about this. One, the wind blows where it wishes. So, so wind does what it wants. It's free. And, and the Holy Spirit moves when he wants to. He he does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. It's his prerogative. I can no more make the Holy Spirit show up in this room and do stuff than than any of us. He's he's God. He's part of the, the triune God. He's part of the Trinitarian deity. He he does what he's absolutely sovereign and powerful. He does what he wants. So Jesus says the wind blow, like we can't control the wind. You can't control the spirit, Nicodemus. Secondly, you you can feel, but you can feel the spirit when he's around. If you're outside and the wind's blowing, you didn't make the wind show up, but all of a sudden it's blowing and you know it's there. You see leaves moving. You feel it on your skin. You get goosebumps. Maybe you're frightened if it's tornadic. You know, you're like, "Ah, I need to take cover. Like you're aware that it's there. And when the Holy Spirit blows, maybe in our quiet time, in a worship service, in the hospital, middle of tragedy or joy, you feel Him moving. You're aware that God is there. You can deny it, but you know he's present. Jesus says, that's that's how it works, Nicodemus. Kind of thirdly and fourthly, you don't know where the wind comes from or where it's going, and you don't know where the Holy Spirit came from or where he's going or what exactly he's doing. In fact, often in the New Testament, They're just trying to figure out, God, what? I know you're doing something, but I'm not exactly sure what it is or how I fit into this equation or what you want me to do. But I know you're there. I know you're working, and I can't control you. Here's how it worked in my life. I was seven-ish, lived in Virginia at the time, went to church that morning, have no remembrance of anything but I ended up at home after church with the Holy Spirit blowing on my heart. And I was sitting in the dark underneath my mom's ironing board having a conversation with the God of the universe. The Spirit was blowing and going, you have sinned and you're guilty and you need Jesus' forgiveness. I didn't make the Holy Spirit show up in that moment. I wasn't looking for him to show up in that moment. In fact, initially, I kind of resisted and said, I don't know if I want in on this. Like, I kind of know I'm supposed to pray that prayer one day, God, but I don't know if today's the day that I want to do it. I I kind of want to still be my own person. I I remember feeling that as a seven-year-old. And yet the Spirit blew, and I repented and placed faith in Jesus. C.S. Lewis described his conversion this way. C.S. Lewis was uh, famously an atheist and later on became a Christian. And he actually, if he kind of pointed to a time, I think it was he was on the way to the zoo one day, I think in a sidecar of a motorcycle, if I'm remembering right. Uh, But or maybe it was a bus. I don't know. But he's on the, He's driving to the zoo or riding to the zoo. And he said, like, one moment, uh, I wasn't a Christian the next moment. I just knew I believed. I knew I was. But, but he describes kind of the, the longer approach this way. He says, he says, you must picture me alone in that room at Magdalene, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom, I'm, whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. And in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And I knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Spirit of his own prerogative just showed up and started blowing and there was nothing C.S. Lewis could do to not be awakened to the reality of the God of the universe and to his cold, dead heart and to, of his need for salvation and of a new heart. And ironically, the, where he wrote this, the book is called Surprised by Joy. So he's the, he's the most reluctant convert in all of England, but then he, he meets the one whom his soul craves, and he's, he's surprised by joy. Overcome by a God in the universe who loves him. That's the first picture. Um, kind of to cap it off, D.A. Carson says the point is that the wind can neither be controlled nor understood by human beings. But that does not mean that we cannot detect the wind's effects. We hear its sound. Watch the swaying grasses, see the clouds scuttling by, hide in fear before the worst windstorms. So it is with the spirit. We can neither control him nor understand him, but that does not mean that we cannot witness his effects. When the spirit, where the spirit works, the effects are undeniable and unmistakable. That's the first picture, Nicodemus, of how this works. Here's the second. If you skip on down, we're not going to go through all of these statements. But in verse 14, Jesus gives Nicodemus another picture. He says, here's here's how it is, Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You want to know how this salvation thing, this new heart thing works? First Nicodemus, the wind blows and he draws people to himself and he awakens their hearts and he takes out the dead heart and he gives them a new heart. Here's the other way it works. Uh, this is a reference to Numbers 21. And in Numbers 21, the people of Israel are wandering in the desert, right? And if you know anything about that portion of the Bible, they're, they're constantly sinning and repenting and they don't go into the promised land quickly because they keep sinning and not trusting God. And God's trying to teach them over the course of the 40 years to trust him. And he has their best interest at heart. He actually lets a generation die off for their unbelief and and waits for their kids to be raised up because they are a believing group. But, But here's what happens in Numbers 21. It says, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient with God on the way And the people spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? We'd rather be slaves than wandering out here in the wilderness, God. Thanks a lot. There's no food and no water, and we loathe the food that you have given us. So they said there's no food. There actually was food. There's no water. Actually was water every time they needed it. and And they say, the food that you've given us is worthless food. Frankly, it's kind of like my kids sometimes at the dinner table. Like, you labored over this? I don't want this. Give me cereal. Give me Cheez-Its. I loathe, I loathe this steak and this barbecue and this good chicken and this breakfast that you've given me. Cheez-Its, please. You're not taking very good care of me, Mom. As Israel. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And now Jesus takes that picture again, who man who knew the Old Testament really well, and says the same way that the, the and that's, by the way, where we get the ambulance symbol. Pole and the serpents from this bible story he says the same way that they though they were sinful and and were experiencing the just consequences of their sin of rebelling against me and the, and the serpents were biting them and they had poison within them and that's what was going on he says if if they they don't need to do anything they just need to look if, if they'll look to the serpent up on the pole they'll be saved and i'll forgive them and heal them they don't need to do they, they're they're guilty. They don't deserve my grace and my mercy, but if, but if they'll just look, if they'll just have faith in my ability to heal, I, I'll heal them. And Jesus says, same way. That was actually a pointer to me, Nicodemus. And he says, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite phrase for himself. So must I, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, so must I be lifted up on a cross so that whoever looks at me may live. There's the second picture, Nicodemus, of how this works. The Spirit blows and awakens your heart, and you are asked to have faith. Tim Keller explained it this way. I thought it was powerful. Some of the people were probably more sick from the serpent bites than others. Some of them were doing okay. Arms rotting off, but I think I'm gonna make it. Others of them are near death. They're all sick. But whether you're pretty good or really bad, it's the same response is required of all of us. Look, faith, just faith in me, that's it. You don't have to do anything. It's not, you're not advantaged if you're a little more well off than the next guy. You both have to do the exact same thing. You have to look. You have to look to Jesus. So if you're sin sick, and if you're far from God, all we do is look to Jesus. All we do is place faith in him. For by grace, we are saved through faith. It's not anything that we do. It's not as a result of good works we do so that we can't boast about it. We don't bring anything to the equation. We, we look to the Savior. We look to Jesus high and lifted up on the cross and we see the Savior who is dying the death that we deserve to die, who's paying for the wrath that we deserve. We, we look and see someone who's, who's bearing the rebellion that is in our hearts. And he takes our place. And, and we look to him and by faith, we're saved. That's how this works, Nicodemus, is I'm going to be high and lifted up and I'm going to pay the penalty that you deserve for your dead, cold heart. And, And instead of you bearing the consequences of that, you're going to look to me and you're going to have faith in me. And that's all you're going to do is you're just going to believe that I have the ability to save you and I'm going to save you because I lived the life that you couldn't live and I'm going to die the death that you deserve to die, and I'm going to raise again supernaturally with power the resurrection from the dead, and I'm going to give you that new resurrection power life. I do all the work. That's how this works. But you need it. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, we've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Our throats are an open grave. With our tongues, we lie and deceive. The venom of snakes is under our lips. Our mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. And our paths are ruin and misery. And we have not known the way of peace. And there is no fear of God. Before our eyes. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. So that if we confess with our mouth. And believe in our heart that God raised us from the dead. We will be saved. John goes on, we're not really going to dive in. But, but John goes on to, to explain the situation that we're in apart from Jesus right now. We have, we have cold, dead hearts. And the spirit is blowing. And all we got to do is look to Jesus. But, but if we don't, this is where we are. God, verse John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But li- listen to what everything else says. God didn't send a son. He didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world. It, Jesus did not come so that you would go to hell. He came so that you don't have to go to hell. He came so that you don't have to continue to be who you are. And it says, um, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned. But if you don't believe in him, but whoever does not believe in him is already condemned. You're already under condemnation. See, right now, apart from Jesus, any, anybody apart from Jesus is, is already under condemnation. You're already bearing some of the consequences of your sin. You may see that life is not working out for you the way that you wish it would. And that's only going to get worse. Until eventually one day, it's going to get much worse. And that's the situation we're in. Ephesians 2 says that we're following the prince of the power of the air. It's such a, a vivid way of explaining it. I didn't share this in first service, but I, I want to read it to you guys because I don't think we believe this. But this this is what Paul, this is who Paul says we are apart from Jesus. We are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, because he's speaking to Christians. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. We're already under condemnation like the rest of mankind. That's who we are apart from Jesus. But this says, and this is the, but God still loved the world. He didn't send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved. That's who you are. That's not who Jesus wants you to remain Ephesians 2 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive, that's regeneration, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you've been saved. And you're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we'd walk in him. He wants to transform your life. He wants to make you new. He doesn't want you to keep the cold, dead heart. He doesn't want you to be fearful and unbelieving. He wants you to believe and be saved. He wants the Spirit to blow on your heart and for you to respond in faith. And so I just want to conclude today by by asking has that happened to you have you ever had the spirit blow on your heart and you believed and he took out your cold dead heart and he gave you a new heart because that's the only way that we see the kingdom That's the only way that we have eternal life. And God loves us. Though though God will by no means clear the guilty, he will by no means lift the consequences of our sin. he's he's, He's merciful even in the midst of his wrath. And he longs for us to turn and live. To see Jesus lifted high and to believe. And and some of you here, um, your life looks pretty together. But you know behind the scenes it's not as together as it looks. And you need a heart transplant. And some of you, it's more obvious that your life is not together. And maybe you walk around fearful that you're going to be judged or not liked because of the way that you are. And I hope when you came in here, you didn't feel judged and you felt the love of Jesus from his people. And God wants to turn your life around. And some of us have sins that we don't want anybody to know about. Maybe we're addicted to opioids and no one knows, our life's falling apart. Maybe we've had an abortion, and no one knows. Or maybe we've paid for an abortion, and we feel guilty, and we don't want anybody to know. Maybe we are addicted to pornography. Maybe we've had a divorce, and though it's a long way gone, you still just feel like, man, I screwed that up. God can't possibly love me after the things that I've done. or whatever you've done. God came. Jesus came. And he died so that you could be forgiven. Would you be forgiven today? And Christian, if you're here and you know that's happened to you, but it seems kind of distant, it seems kind of a long time ago, would you cry out and ask the Holy Spirit to create in you a clean heart and renew a steadfast joy within you and to help you rejoice again at what he's done and to remind you of how great this salvation is so that we can worship. Let's pray. Father, it would... Just be so amazing. If you would help us now to respond in faith and enjoy. God, if you would, if you would take these moments and as we sing and as we take communion, if you would remind us of deep truths and help us to find newfound joy in Jesus. This would be so, so worth it if you would just do that. And if you would awaken our hearts to him and to the joy of knowing him. And so I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would help us to worship. God, I pray that if there's anybody here who doesn't yet know you, would you, in this moment, please draw them to yourself and save them and awaken their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.